Welcome to the North American Waterfowl Podcast. I'm Brett Amundsen. This podcast is dedicated to the ducks and geese that we all love. To kick off this new show, we've got a series of podcasts about the craziest band stories we've ever heard. If you've got a great story, let us know about it. Maybe it'll end up on this podcast. I recorded these interviews in 2021, and we've been a little busy with other projects, but we're happy to finally get them out to you. I hope you enjoy them. This show features Nick Dawkin, who works in Alaska and does some bird banding. He went full circle with a white-fronted goose that he neck-collared in Alaska, and then it was shot in an Arkansas field that he was in that day. This is a really cool interview. Check it out. Oh, and at the beginning, I talk about wanting to be in Alaska. By the way, I got my bucket list trip to Alaska. You can watch the film on Kodiak Island. Watch it on the Fish Hunt Forever YouTube channel. This is the North American Waterfall Show. Brought to you by DRC Calls. Duck, goose, and crane calls made by the North American Goose Calling Champion, Corey Loeffler. Learn more at drccalls.com. And Mid-Migration Outfitters. Guided duck and goose hunts in western Minnesota. Learn more at midmigrationoutfitters.com. And fish on forever. I hunt and always will. I just never know where we're going to end up next here on this show. And now we're going up to Alaska virtually. Unfortunately, I'd rather be up there in person doing this. Alaska is number one on my list of places that I haven't been to that I want to go to uh, yet. And I want to do it. A lot of people do it for fishing. I want to go up there for the waterfowl hunting. And our next guest knows a thing or two about waterfowl in Alaska. It's Nick Dawkin. Nick, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, you're from Minnesota originally, right? No, I'm from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Oh, I mean, yep. that's pretty yep. close, Back but <laughs> you can't get those two mixed up. Uh, Wisconsin. What part of Wisconsin are you from? Uh, it's Dane County, just southwest of Madison. I uh, grew up. Yep. All right. Well, what did you did you live in Minnesota or were you in Wisconsin the whole time? Uh, I got a sister that lives in Mankato. And um, so, yeah, I, I did. uh I said, grew up in southern Wisconsin, but did my undergrad, went to school in Stevens Point, where a lot of the uh, natural resources uh, professionals start their career. Um, and then I jumped over across Minnesota and then went to grad school, South Dakota State University in Brookings. So a couple couple border border communities uh, of Minnesota. And got a lot so of I, I mean, I wasn't even close about Minnesota then, pretty, yeah, <laughs> pretty no. much. Well, regardless, we're not going to talk about Minnesota. We're going to talk about Alaska uh, primarily and what you do up there. Uh, tell us what you do in Alaska. Yeah, you know, just like you, avid waterfaller, you know, lost teenage boy, like, oh, what do I go to school for? So I studied the natural resources and, and, uh, developed my passion for wildlife uh, management and ecology in Stevens Point and did some wood duck bock works. And that really got the scientific wheels turning. Um, had an opportunity to work with Delta Waterfall in North Dakota, up in the Kandu country with uh, some of their predator management blocks and, you know, further developed that research bug uh, passion for working with waterfall, not just chasing them with my shotgun and and then, like I said, I had the opportunity to go to grad school, South Dakota State University, and it was just a downhill slope from there as far as uh, the migrations and the prairie potholes and learning the production there and fell in love with South Dakota. And 
it's like, man, this is my calling with all the, the migrations and the production that goes on here. And I was kind of wrapping up grad school and uh, had the opportunity to do a summer uh, lead a research crew on the north slope of Alaska. I was actually doing eider research, working with stellars and spectacled eiders. Uh, so I led a field crew on the furthest most tip of the coastal Alaska um, on the north slope. And um, yeah, like I said, just another downhill slope. Never looked back at the Midwest uh, um, and just sucked me in, did that project for a couple of years. And then I got my got my, my thesis wrapped up. So I had to come back and chase the migration uh, in the fall and, and finished up my, my thesis. But yeah, way up in Barrow, uh, um, uh, Upiagvik now in the North Slope of Alaska. But uh, um, so I kind of bounced around working with the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, leading different research crews, uh, the Yukon Flats National Wildlife Refuge. I did a big, big lesser scop study there. That was a lot of fun, you know, but it was really cool coming from the prairie, cutting my teeth in the prairies um, and then going up to the tundra. I mean, there's so many different species of avian life and waterfall that are attracted up to the tundra and just something that I've, you know, read in, in, in textbooks and stuff, but getting to see that frozen tundra just turn to life in the production and craziness that goes on up there in the midnight sun uh, was just a, a, was a cool resource experience. Also was a really neat, uh, cultural experience uh interacting with some of the native communities there and um but then like i said i did a big lesser scop study in the yukon flats national wildlife refuge and so pure boreal forest country you saw another key breeding ground uh habitat uh that attracts and produces a ton of our migratory waterfall um so that was a really cool project that i led for two years uh doing some lesser scop research looking at some heavy contaminant loads. Uh, so we were trapping, doing a lot of nest searching and trapping birds in the nest and, and drawing blood. And we put some transmitters on uh, some of those scop mm. uh, to, to see where they were, they're going and seeing, you know, potential sources of uh, picking up any heavy contaminants. And, and, you know, you just learn so much, uh, their life cycle. You know, there's the Yukon, Yukon river there and, and the Yukon flats, uh, is a huge national wildlife refuge. Um, it, uh, and, and then in 2014, I jumped to working with USGS and did another uh, project uh, from the Chip River, the North Slope of Alaska. One of my more memorable or more favorite field seasons uh, working with white-fronted geese. Um, and that was a well, really cool experience because we got... Before, Go before you get into the white fronts, I want to back up just a little bit because I, w- yep. I want to make a couple of points about what you talked about. And, you know, uh, that's Dan, my nephew, that we've been seeing a couple of times here on the show. We both grew up hunting waterfowl. And I feel like the more you get into hunting waterfowl, the more you just start to appreciate them and you want to learn everything about them. Um, right. The different colors, the different vocalizations, the different habitats they use, the, the habits they have, where they feed, when they feed. And my, the, I think the most fascinating part about waterfowl is the migration uh, research that you can learn and just how far some of these birds fly and, and where they go, where they nest, where they, where they winter and where they stop in between those, those locations. Uh, so I can see how you went down that slope of going from waterfowl hunter to, to waterfowl researcher and just wanting to learn a lot more about them. And when you talk about the lesser scop, I, this isn't going to be in your wheelhouse, but I'm curious to know if you have any comments about this because 
when you talk to hunters, waterfowl hunters in Minnesota in particular, uh, they're quick to lament the fact that, oh, you know, if you talk to the older guys, oh, it's not like the, the good old days. All oh, the ducks are gone. Minnesota is terrible. The DNR is, doesn't know what they're doing, whatever. They've got excuses for everything. And while I disagree with a lot of that, because I think we've got some incredible duck numbers, uh, may not be the same species that they were used to seeing growing up. They may not be in the same locations, but man, we, in certain areas, we've got pile of, piles of ducks, especially in that prairie portion on the western edge of Minnesota. Um, but a lot of those guys, I think, in, this is my theory, that a lot of those guys, when they talk about the reduction in waterfowl numbers in the state, they're talking primarily about divers. I think a lot of those guys grew up, grew, grew, grew up chasing uh, bluebills and scop. And then we had the big die-off in the 90s, I think it was, or right. somewhere around there, there was the big die-off. And I think a snail was mainly uh, the culprit. Do you, do you have a theory on what happened there? You know, yeah, that's that's a little out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd just be speculating, but um, you know, and that was it was a really cool. I did I did learn a lot about you know their their habits and nesting nesting habitat, and um, you know, definitely a huge fan of the scop. Uh, but yeah, um, maybe you can just kind of talk about it. There's a lot, yeah. a lot a lot of theories out there, and uh, I, w- I wouldn't feel sure. comfortable, yeah, pinpointing any specific ones, but. Well, I'm terrible at putting the right person on the screen here. Um, tell me about their their eating habits when when they because they like to eat snails, right? So when people talk about them eating this specific snail, you could see how that could cause a die off in a population. Yeah, um, you know, and obviously, like I said the waterfall have specific uh, food resources they key in on, and you know, and they they vary different different stages of the migration and life cycle and um, it, uh, I'd have to go back and do my my research nah. on, on this, this scop, right. the scop right, uh, No worries. Um, we, we can move on to something else. It, you know, another interesting about uh, scop in North Dakota and Delta Waterfall, I had John Devney on the show um, a while back, and he said scop are doing great in North Dakota. Like the one place where numbers are really doing well is in North Dakota. So maybe the migration did shift a little west. It's, it's hard to say exactly what happened. But let's get back onto white fronts because that's – I think they're really cool geese. Um, they ha- There's so many of them this year that came through Minnesota. We saw so many specks. And when we hunt s- snow geese in the spring, uh, we're always covered up in specks and they always decoy and they're always, oh, what's that flock coming at us? Well, how high are they? They're pretty low. They're definitely specks. Like, <laughs> like you, yeah. can, you can almost tell that they're white fronts just by how they're acting because they, they're not getting shot at like the snow geese are. But I feel like, Maybe you can maybe maybe you can answer this. Maybe you can't, but I feel like that population is expanding. Um, I I don't know how much research there is on the population size of those birds. I'd be curious to learn a little bit more. But I feel like it's growing. We're definitely seeing more of them in Minnesota. And for a number of years, we tried to figure out what was going on with them. Why why would we see them here in the spring, but we never see them here in the fall? And a lot of that has to do with how fast they migrate south. Like they will go from way north to way south in just a couple of days. They'll fly all night, whatever. Why? What? Why do you think they migrate so fast? Uh, what makes them different like that? Do you have any idea? Boy, yeah, it'd be just speculating, you know. But a lot of it's like weather patterns and just availability of resources and um, historic events. You know, they know the the getting's good, you know, and wherever their destination is, and um, if the wind currents and Sure. Just the, the stars align to 
pass through an area. Um, you know, like I said, there's agricultural historic changes and shifts, which is kind of steered migration patterns a little bit. And um, like I said, again, there's probably a, uh, a lot of theories out there and I'm sure there's other people that could, could answer. Yeah. I'm probably know, throwing a lot of research not, questions not, at you that really aren't in your no, wheelhouse. But I, th- I think some of that stuff is real cool, but I, I want to talk about specs in particular because you do some, some work with banding up in Alaska, right? What do you do up there? Yeah. So it, uh, um, but I can, take us one quick step back uh, so i've been leading bouncing around some of these uh uh you know 10 years ago when i first came up to alaska 12 years ago um was bouncing around leading some of these different research crews and um you know experiencing a lot of the different resources uh uh throughout the state and working with some of the different species and um that led led me time in the off season um a few months off so i would migrate south and, and chase the migration with my shotgun and in South Dakota, made good friends with a, uh, an outfitter, Matt Shower, throwing skies outfitters, and and got got talked into uh, coming back and, and guiding the spring snow goose hunt. And so, you know, uh, yeah, we could chat for a long time on the ins and outs of of chasing the, the white devil, the snow goose. But uh, um, from spending time down in Arkansas, you know, over the last ten years, you know, seeing that white front population increase and talking to some of those locals who have a longer history down there um just noticing you know all goose numbers uh and you know the the bio any biologists will tell you that that arctic geese are uh doing very well um they're expanding their ranges expanding their breeding grounds um when i first worked uh up in barrow on that eider project in 2010 and 11 you know we were marking white fronts and there was hardly any snow geese uh uh, I don't think they had documented a snow goose nest in that area yet, but now there's getting to be more and more snow goose there. And the yeah. white fronts are just doing all across the North slope of Alaska doing, um, very prolific. And, um, and so, yeah, they're, they're breeding success in the Arctic is doing well. And yeah, guys are seeing it, yeah, seeing more white fronts in other areas that they didn't historically see. And, and, you know, down there in the rice country in Arkansas, when I was chasing the snow goose migration to seeing, the the white front numbers doing doing well and and some of the other local observations you know supporting that but but so that year in 2014 was yeah like i said a just a cool field season um i got to go up and um got dropped off in the the frozen lake and and watch the whole spring progression thaw um before the white front and all the geese showed up but when they showed up we were doing a big nesting study we're actually looking doing a specific study looking at gosling growth rates and so we had to go find as many white front nests as we could. And we were catching the female, the nesting females on the nest. And we would uh, web tag, we would time it uh, uh, so I could go back and catch her right at the day of hatch by looking at her eggs. I knew at the incubation stage so I could time it and get, get to her the day she's hatching her nest. Uh, and we would web tag all the goslings so we know what day they were born. And then during our, our late summer banding drives, we'd get a helicopter and air support and we'd corral up the geese during their molting period when the adults can't fly uh, and the young haven't fledged yet. And so we knew when we capt- captured that bird, um, those goslings again, that had a web tag in it, we knew that bird when it was hatched so we could get a growth rate. We're looking at some of their diet 
you know, because why are these geese, you know, doing so good? What are they eating? What, you know, is their diet shifting? And, and, uh, um, and so that was a really cool study. We were, like I said, just an intensive, a lot, a lot of miles logged on the tundra that summer, going back to the nests and, and tagging the goslings uh, and catching the females on the nest, but then doing the, the more massive kind of banding drives late summer, you know, and like when bio- biologists have banding crews out for Arctic geese, you know, whether it be brant or snow geese or white fronts, uh, you know, that's how they're typically um, wrangle up the birds is, is via aircraft. And when that, that late summer, they go through that molt, um, just like the, the, the giants Canada geese in the Midwest will too. And that's how they'll band a lot of them is, is kind of corral them up, maybe not with a helicopter, but uh, um, get in a big pond and, and, and kind of funnel them into a, a pen and, and yeah, set up a mass banding station and, you know, process a few hundred birds at a time. And um, it, uh, um, when- so it was cool. We'd recatch these geese and um, we had neck collars on the, the hens with transmitters. And so that's how we could pinpoint where we knew where the goslings that we'd already tagged were going to be is because we had their mother had a transmitter on her neck collar that we could follow them in the, in the airplane. So we knew which flocks to, to uh, specialize. Yep. So there's a, a hen I just caught off the nest uh, with that transmitter. And so when we uh, would go uh, re-catch her and her brood that had the web tags, we would uh, – break that collar off and put one on without a transmitter. So we didn't want her migrating with that extra bulky weight. Um, it, uh, um, but yeah, that, like I said, that was probably one of my, my coolest, coolest summers, just the, the start, the finish, you know, getting dropped off before the birds were there and then doing that fall banding and, and then watching them go south was just seeing that whole progression of that, that Arctic come to life. It's really cool. I have a question about when you would look at eggs and you could tell what part of the incubation, what part of the process, what day they were on, basically. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. So, you know, like you could Google, uh, you know, chicken brooders, uh, you know, would have some literature on it, but we call it candling. Um, I could pull up some pictures online. Uh, I don't have one sitting here, but I have a, uh, just a paper tube for an example. And yep. And so I I actually use radiator hose, uh, about twice as long a piece of radiator hose. And if you had a, uh, an egg, you could hold that up to the sunlight and I just rotate it 360 degrees and they're, they're transparent enough, um, that I can see what's going on, the development stages. And there's charts that, you know, I can look at and, you know, after, my master's work in the, in the in South Dakota, I looked at I don't know how many hundreds of duck nests, you know, times eight eggs each, and you'd go I'd go back every week, and so I could see them progressing, and so it tested my candling skills, and then and um, so then I got I mean literally, if I I looked at a three day old uh, duck or goose egg. I can tell you exactly the day that it's hatching. You know, I've just had enough experience uh, that yeah, it's a really, really cool skill. And that's crazy. Yeah, kind of a weird thing. And, yeah. You can also float the egg in like a, uh, uh, a dish of water and it based on the, the gas exchange and development, it'll start off, it'll sink and then it slowly starts floating. And then as that development takes place, it'll, uh, it'll start floating and, and, uh, See, so that's another method because the goose eggs have a thicker shell. They're not as transparent as the the duck eggs are. 
and so it's a little more challenging. But anyways, yeah, it's a, it's a cool part of the, the nesting studies is any any field biologist that's done nesting work is, yeah, proficient at candling eggs. So you have obviously got some experience with learning where some of those birds that you've marked uh, and where they travel to. Aside from the main story we're here to talk about, how much of that data have you been able to see? Like how much do you know about where those white fronts go from Alaska? Um, like I said, that was just the one, uh, you know, one field season, you know, so I didn't really manage any of that data or I wasn't the, the lead, the lead, uh, biologist on the, on the study that, that got all the band returns and monitored all that, that tracking data. Um, but yeah, a lot of them are going down, uh, into California and, you know, and kind of spread out all over really. Um, but yeah, definitely down into to Arkansas and um, a lot of those you know, wintering grounds where you see some of those large groups now, but um, so, but I, I, I'm not that intimate with, with that data set. Uh, I'm currently down in the South central Alaska where I've been the last five years on the copper river Delta. Um, and actually we got the, the dusky Canada goose um, population here. And, and so I've been, we put neck collars and, and mark, mark those birds, um, you know, and they, they overwinter in the Willamette Valley in Oregon and Washington. And so that's been my latest, my latest research, uh, um, endeavor these last few years, but yeah, they don't have much of a migration, do they? No, no, it's just, yeah. Pop down to the, the Willamette Valley and then roll up the coast and come to South Central Alaska where a lot of the other geese, you know, are traveling two, three times, uh, the, the, the length is, is, uh, is that, but. What they have a, a little bit of a different color to them. What what do you think causes that? That's you know good question. Uh, it's, you know I'm sure it's the subtle subtleties in the what they're eating shades of a yellow lab and a British lab, sure. and you know I'm sure it's genetic. You know but. sure. You know, do you know anything about the emperor geese at all? Um, not a lot. Um. You know, I haven't worked on the on the far western coast in the YK Delta. Um, it, uh, uh, but yeah, it's a really cool story of, of yeah, just like all like I said, all Arctic East of populations are doing good, and as I'm sure you're aware, and um, most uh, waterfowl hunters are kind of drooling over the opportunity. Yeah. To, now they've got they've got a limited harvest on that emperor goose uh, population, and you got to draw a tag. But because um, that's the first time that's been open in like 30 years or something, isn't it? Something yep. in there. Yep. That's wild. Well, let's, let's get back to white friends. Let's tell the story. Yeah. So this is what, 2013? Yep. 2014. I was up in the Arctic that whole full summer. And like I said, my off season, I was chasing the migration, uh, um, down South. And that year I had, a um, uh, opportunity. We had a big duck pit. We rented, um, close to our snow goose, snow goose camp. And, and so I ran some duck hunts that December and January, and it was, I think, the week before um, the spring conservation order started. Um, so we're still waterfall hunting, shooting, um, uh, you know, ducks and white fronts and um, opportunistic snows. And uh, I had a crew of clients. Uh, we uh, The rice field was good that morning. We had shot our limit and we're out of there by 9 o'clock. And one of the other guides from North Carolina had his cousin in, in town. They were just fun hunting for uh, the week before the snow goose conservation order ramped up and, and uh, they hadn't, 
they had a slow morning and I was like, oh, Davey, you need to come to our pit. Like we're out of here. You know, we got a limit, you know? And so they, they, uh, came and, and jumped in there after we were done and I was back cooking breakfast for our crew and enjoying a successful morning. And I get, uh, I get this text message come through my phone and, and, uh, uh, Davey, uh, I was like, oh, look at this. we got some white fronts and, and here's his cousin holding, holding, uh, uh, this white front with a red neck collar on it. And I was like, Oh, congrats. Cool. You know, obviously that's the, you know, the unicorn, the trophy bird that the big bonus that every waterfall hunter to have that, that prize of that learning that story of that marked bird. And, um, and, uh, but then I like, I relooked at the picture and I was like, XPM, XPM. Like, why does that number on that collar just stick out? And it, uh, and I was like, no. So I got onto my, my laptop and yeah, within two minutes, I had a picture of me holding that bird on the nest. Um, after I caught it for that, that study that, that summer it, uh, um, I remember that number, obviously there was dozens of, uh, birds that we, we collared and I forget the total number that we, we've collars on the nesting birds but i don't know if it was a hundred but it was quite a few um but that one really stuck out because it was close to our camp every day just so i didn't continue to disturb her on her nest i had to hike like a <laughs> half mile extra out of the way just to avoid her um to, to keep her on her nest uh and so i would i would scan her with the binoculars on a daily basis and i'd, I'd have to hike around her x xpm and so um yeah, I don't know if you have the picture. Uh, is that the one um, we saw earlier? No, it oh, was a different one. Uh, just a different one without oh, the okay, without the transmitter is. on it. But but yeah, there it's, it's kind of hard to read. But the top, you can see the X. Uh, but yeah, XPM. Uh, it was a jury jury day up there uh, wearing a raincoat. But uh, yeah, so that that bird uh, had migrated. You know, so that was uh, early July. Uh, early mid July when that was and, and yeah, early January, 4,000 miles, some miles South, uh, I'm never months later, uh, reunited with that bird again. Yeah. There you go. Uh, uh there's me holding that bird after the, yeah, the buddy shot it back at the, the goose lodge. Uh, but yeah, that's crazy. Pretty, so you, you knew that bird pretty thing. well. Yeah. That was when I was intimate with, like I said, it was close to camp and I had, uh, hike around her on a, almost a daily basis she 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 kept she kept me in shape that summer for putting on had to put on a few extra miles uh but that's crazy but yeah, pretty pretty crazy yeah and, and so i've like i said uh, i talked to a couple other locals uh avid waterfall hunters down there in that area and and they um have reported the one guy he would drive around and he would just recite neck collars and and he he had definitely seen uh other birds from that specific it was that I, I worked on that project it was the fourth year fourth and final year of that specific research project um and uh, but he he definitely identified birds in that area from that same study so it was kind of a, kind of a small world uh so was it shot in the field you were in that morning that you bailed yep. out of okay if I, if I would have just stayed there and hung out for another hour i would i would have seen it yeah go down <laughs> Man, that is definitely one of the craziest band stories I've heard. Um, you've got a couple other band stories you were telling me about before we started recording. 
Oh yeah. I mean, it, uh, like I said, how much time do you got to the chat, but you know, just like every, every waterfaller, uh, has, a uh, you know, his, his, his lanyard, uh, with, you know, I, I mean, it's full, it's just full of stories. Um, that, uh, these are a couple of scop, you know? And so I, I, I kind of cheat though. Uh, this band was, a a canvas back that we trapped, that we trapped, uh, in the Minto flats management area in, in central Alaska. And it, it's, you know, it's probably hard to see, but it's so war, you can't read the numbers. So we had to, we just pulled it off and replaced it. And I, I maybe snuck that one in my pocket, uh, afterwards, but there was, uh, uh, there was a cool story. My first summer, uh, it really got me into banding research. Uh, there was a lesser scop uh, working with Delta Waterfall. There was a dead lesser scop. Um, I went to do a nest check, and it was laying there, uh, breast up, feathers everywhere, and the breasts were eaten out, but nothing else, and the eggs weren't eaten. You know, and so we were working on Delta Waterfall's block predator management, uh, you know, trap blocked areas, and, uh, you know, skunks, raccoon, you know, red fox historically you know or the or what you think thinking of uh, as the main menace predators and um i was like why would something kill this bird eat some breast meat and not touch the eggs you know that's usually what they're eating is the eggs and well here within like a hundred yard radius there was three lesser scop the exact same way just belly up feathers everywhere breasts eaten out um and uh and that you know they're all banded from a previous study uh but here there was a peregrine falcon in an old dead snag. And so it was that raptor, that falcon that was getting those birds uh, um, at, uh, on the nest. And so, so I, 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 like I said, I cheated. I got a few research bands. Uh, You've um, trained that, on the that peregrine falcon to look for banded birds, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so but, all uh, three of them were banded? Yeah, from a prior prior study. Wow. But like I said, it was, you could have took a picture of that nest and all three of them would have looked exactly exactly the same. But, hmm. but yeah, and then obviously, you know, being a dog, uh, dog guys, uh, they're like most waterfall hunters. You know, it was uh, my old lab, Jake. Yeah, he's 12 now, but he, I'm trying to think what year it was, but it was probably only three. So still in his early years, but really took on the boy that snow goose hunting for a young retriever, there's nothing better than that snow goose game. Those white birds, they can just mark them so long. Those blind retrieves, it's just nothing better for a young retriever's experience is, uh, is time in a snow goose uh, field. It, uh, it was late spring. We didn't have an epic, you know, pile made that day, but uh, um, just some good clients that uh, we still hunt with today. And, um, sailed this bird you know and it was like in the nosebleeds like one of those like 99.9 percent of people don't even think about even pretending to go look for um and uh you know 10 15 minutes went by and and things slowed down and i i could you know we knew a bird sailed uh and i got the binoculars out and i can see it it was a big plowed up field and I could see it and it was walking across that field. And I was like, you know, I knew things weren't hot and heavy. And I was like, I'm going to try and test this dog. Like it, uh, but yeah, so it was like 300 yards to the field we were in and it was a big levee. And that was the, probably the biggest challenge, um, was getting them to cross that levee in the, a big deep ditch. But then it was like, 
you know, on the flat rice country, um, we were elevated and it was like a 10, 15 foot drop to the next series of, of fields where this goose was way back in. And, and so I, and luckily he stopped on the backside of that ditch and I gave another back cast and, and like, I knew like after that, it was just all on him. Like I knew if I could get him somewhere out in that dark field that he would probably see it. See it. And, and, uh, um, and I see him, he's out in the field and he's looking and he stopped and looked back and he was just, you know, kind of lost. And then he kind of like just started going a little bit further. And then all of a sudden you see the wheels just lock in and takes off, you know, another quarter mile across this field. And, and the birds could almost fly still. And so he was on its, was on its tail for, you know, 200 yards, but caught it, brought it all the way. I mean, it was literally a, you know, I should have measured it, but it was a full mile, you know, for sure. Probably the longest, you know, Jake's, it was the highlight of his career retrieve, but it comes back and, you know, lo and behold, the thing is double banded, (laughs) $10 reward band on it. And I mean, like, like I said, it was, I'll never forget that. And, and so, yeah, those, those long-term clients, I mean, it was just the highlight of their season and that, that birds on display hanging, hanging above their fireplace, those bands, you know, and it's just, you know, every time we, we talk about that, that story and experience, but you know, like I said, that, that proud dad, proud dog owner experience it, but yeah, I don't know how many bands over the years, just on cripple control, um, you gotta, you gotta pick up all those birds because it pays. Yeah, those guys that are. You know, all you have to do is hear about that one time, or have it happen to you, you one know, time, and you, it makes you go after yeah. every cripple, even if, even if you didn't see it hit the ground. So I, I saw it go behind the trees over there. I'm just gonna go take a look, because it seems like yeah. you hear about those banded birds, you know, sailors being banded birds all the time. So yeah. that's awesome. Well, that's very cool, man. Some some great uh, band stories. Are you going to be doing some some banding uh, this upcoming summer? Are you guys doing it, or is COVID kind of knocking it out, or what's what's going on? Yep, COVID COVID really hit, uh, postponed our dusky banding last summer. So you know, and, and things are getting better, especially in Alaska. You know, our rural communities have really kind of prioritized vaccinations and stuff, and so we're kind of coming out of it. Knock on wood. Uh, um, but uh, so we're hoping to see more normal like field seasons uh um we definitely were at low capacity with our field crews last year but some some field work happened but i probably know a lot of the waterfall surveys didn't get conducted and um yeah i was gonna go help out big uh stellar zyder banding drives in in cold bay alaska on the lucians um but that got canceled again last year and so i'm hoping those projects yeah the stage is set that they're going to take place this year. So good. hopefully they will. Yeah. Very good. Well, I'm sure you'll have some interesting data that you'll learn there and you'll probably have to come back and tell us about it. Uh, after, after you learn about it, uh, Nick, I appreciate the time. Good luck up there. Have fun walking a half mile back to your vehicle and, uh, <laughs> thanks for the time on the show. Yeah. Perfect. Nice, nice chat and appreciate it guys. All right. If you like this podcast, make sure you leave us a review, like it, share it, subscribe to it, send it to your friends. We appreciate it. And find out more about us at NorthAmericanWaterfowl.com. This has been a Fish Hunt Forever production.